Welcome to episode 258 of the Energy Talks podcast. I'm energy and climate journalist Margaret Hislop. I last interviewed Michael Liebrich last April for episode 167 on why hydrogen is not a silver bullet. Since then, the world's focus has shifted to electricity, particularly the rapid adoption of solar, solar voltaic, and more specifically, the emergence of China as the preeminent clean energy powerhouse in the world. China, with all its imperfections, is going to drag humankind kicking and screaming into the electric age by dominating both the adoption of clean energy and its manufacture. 2023, in my opinion, was an inflection point in this energy transition, the year the future of energy became clear. Well, much more clear, at least. I can't think of anyone better with whom to discuss the future than today's guest, so welcome to the interview, Michael. Thank you very much, Mark. It's a great pleasure to be back on the show. I always enjoy our conversations. And this one, I think, is really germane to what's going on in the world today. Um, because, you know, we're seeing, for instance, in, in North America, a discussion about the slowdown of, of electric vehicle uptake. And it's almost like, you know, is the EV going to die? I mean, the conversations are going in directions I hadn't anticipated. And I'm sure we'll we'll clear them up and they'll go in other directions later on this year or whenever. But my my point here is, and, I, and this is germane to a op-ed you wrote not that long ago, five reasons why the energy transition is going to go a little faster than we thought. And maybe that's the place to start is to talk about your, because you had some very interesting ideas. So why don't you give us just a, an overview of that op-ed, if you don't mind? Right. Well, thank you very much. So I have indeed written that five reasons things are going to go faster op-ed, um, except it hasn't come out yet. It hasn't quite come out yet. It's the second part of a two-parter. So what I did last year, I, I thought, OK, you know, you've just mentioned a piece of pseudo news, right, that the EV uptake slowed down in North America, right? It's not true. If you actually look at the numbers, EV growth, 50% last year. What happened was a few of the incumbent manufacturers, very specifically, you know, people like Ford with their F-150, they had a bad year. But of course, Tesla didn't have a bad year and uh, BYD didn't have a bad year and others. So in fact, there was 50% growth. So what's happening is you've got this enormous amount of noise in the news flow. And by the way, I've been doing this for 20 years. There was never a year when there wasn't noise because everybody's trying to kind of use every snippet of data. You know, they're cherry picking to prove their arguments and, and so on. And, you know, a lot of what I do and I think what you do is we're trying to get the signal out of the noise. So at the end of last year, I wrote a piece. I thought, OK, should we be optimistic or should we be pessimistic about the transition? And I said, right, I'll do a two parter. Last year, and I think September, I wrote five reasons why the transition is basically we should we should forget about it. It's going to be really hard, nay, impossible. And I called them the five horsemen of the apocalypse, of the transition apocalypse, right? Uh, and then this year, I've written, and it's just about to come out. This is for Bloomberg. Um, the five I call them um, the five superheroes of the transition. And so the five the five horsemen the bad news things were that you know although you know wind and solar are you know competitive and evs are actually competitive but lots of other things are not competitive if you want to do uh, green steel or if you want to do clean cement or if you want to do heating it's just not there yet right so economics was one bad thing one you know horseman of the apocalypse um grid constraints was the second minerals was the third the fourth was political inertia and social inertia. It's just, you know, if there's confusion, do nothing. Um, and, and so that was number four. And then number five was actually regulatory capture and bad people, whether they are, uh, whether it's, you know, US politicians being paid for by oil, gas, coal, or whether it was, you know, corruption, or whether it's just, you know, the kind of newspapers we have in the UK who think it's entertaining to write, you know, to, to, to write huge stories on the one person they found who had a bad experience with a heat pump. So those are the bad things. Those are my five, you know, horsemen of the transition apocalypse. But what's really interesting is those five things are all, in a sense, temporarily constrained. They're kind of here and now. That's what we feel now. We're worried about the grid now. We're worried about uh, minerals now. 
But fundamentally, there's no reason why we can't build whatever grid we want or why we can't you know, mine. There's no shortage of the minerals in this Earth's crust. So then you've got the five superheroes, which I've written about, and it'll appear in, in a, 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 I think, a few days. And that is exponential growth, very different from, you know, sort of the usual energy commodities. This is manufacturing and AI and software that drives clean energy economics. So exponential growth, system solutions. So the fact that, for instance, the more heat pumps and EVs you have, the more solar you can absorb in the system because those are flexible resources to a certain extent. A few hours, a few days, you move things around, charge your car when it's windy, sunny, right? And so there's a sort of feeding on each other of these solutions. So system solutions was number two. Number three was, do you remember hard to abate sectors, right? And we were worried about them and what are we gonna do with, I don't know, steel and what are we gonna do with high temperature heat and aviation uh, fuel and, and all these things? Well, guess what? We now have two things. One, we have line of sight on how to do these things and at costs of, you know, 50, 100, 200, $250 per ton of carbon avoided, not at prices of $1,000, right? So we're starting to get our arms around this thing. And the second thing we've got is great power competition, right? So we've got countries who really want to own those industries because they understand their engines of enormous wealth in the future. And so they're plowing money into those hard to abate, formerly hard to abate sectors. So that's number three is kind of great power competitors and industrial strategy. Number four is disappearing demand. When you don't mine coal, you don't need coal mining. You don't need the railway tracks. Uh, if you don't refine oil, you don't need refineries, pipelines. Shipping is fascinating. 40% of shipping is moving oil, gas, coal around the world. Another 15% is iron ore, which is going to be refined where it's dug, because that tends to be where it's sunny as well. So there's disappearing chunks of demand. And then number five, I find absolutely fascinating, well understood by some, not understood by most, is that there's this thing called primary energy demand, which is what we are always told is so colossal and is still 80% fossil and much too big. People like Václav Smel, you know, and Bjorn Lomborg, they'll all say, oh, you know, it's so big, the problem's intractable, it'll take 50 years even to just write down what the problem is, all that kind of stuff. Well, actually, two thirds of that is waste mainly thermal waste, mainly from uh, oil, gas, coal, you know, burning petrol in your car. Most of it does not move the car forwards. And so the actual problem we have to solve is energy services. I just want to be warm. I don't, I don't care how I'm warm. If it's a heat pump multiplying the, 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 the energy by four, I'm just as happy as if it's a furnace that's, you know, between the gas field and my home is only 50% efficient. I don't care. I just want the warmth. I want the warmth, I want the light, I want the cold beer, right? And doing those things actually requires only about a third of the energy that we call primary energy demand. Primary energy demand has got nothing to do with demand. So cold beer is a demand. So, so we've got these five superheroes that are really going to help us. And those are long-term drivers, and I think they'll win. Oh, dear, Michael. I, I suspect you've been listening to Energy Talks podcasts in your spare time. <laughs> Well, look, uh, the I, I've made this point already, and I've made it in other podcasts, which is that being trained as a historian, as I was, is a real advantage here, because there's a tendency to think of this energy transition as a light switch. You flick it on, you flick it off, and it's not that way. It's not that way at all, which is why the S-curve is such a, a useful tool for understanding how technology develops and how it enters the market, how it diffuses over time, and how it competes in the marketplace with the dominant energy sources, in this case, coal, oil, and fuel. So when you think of it that way, and you think of it as a historical process that might take 50 to 100 years, 
you begin to have different expectations of it. You don't expect that because electric vehicles, you know, became competitive in 2021, that suddenly you're going to flick a switch and the whole, you know, you're going to replace the entire global fleet of 1.5 billion uh, light duty vehicles. And you're suddenly, they're all going to be electric and uh, it's going to overwhelm the, the grid and all of those things that often come up in conversations about this energy transition. You see change over time. And for me, that when I say that 2023 was the inflection point, what I mean is that the, the arc of change, the arc of adoption of many of these clean energy technologies, I think came into focus in 2023 in a way that they maybe hadn't previously. Uh, I don't know. What's your take on that? Well, I, I, the short answer, I, I feel like Henry Kissinger, when he was asked, you know, in one word, what are the prospects of peace in the Middle East? He said, good. And then he was asked, well, what, what if you had two words? Then he said, well, not good. Um, and, and so the short answer is, yes, I agree with you um, that there is this uptick that we saw. Actually, I actually I'm going to say it. I called it coming out of COVID. I called it the great clean energy acceleration. And I think it's been going on uh, for a few years. Uh, it just, But I'm not going to, we're not going to quibble between friends over a year or two. 20, 2023, we certainly saw evidence that it's really accelerating. The longer answer, though, is that actually these S-curves are not, they're not unitary. This is the kind of Václav Smil mistake, right? He says, oh, everything takes 50 years because energy is so big. No, what happens is that there's a bunch of S-curves by sector and by country. So as an example, one S-curve was electric vehicles in Norway, right? They put a ton of incentives on, but they went to like 50% of all vehicles sold, had a plug, took about six, seven years. That was it, six or seven years. And suddenly it was like you were halfway up the S-curve. In the UK, in 2012, 42% of our electricity was from coal. 2012, right? It's not that long ago. Today, it's basically zero. And so what you've got is these S-curves, the kind of the big S-curve might be 50 years or 70 years or whatever. And it, but, the, but the little S-curves are much, much LED lighting. That's another one. I mean, you know, it is not that long ago that when an LED light bulb, and I know because I bought some of the early ones, cost like 80 bucks. You know, that's not that long ago. And now almost every, I mean, every light bulb I buy certainly doesn't cost 80 bucks and it is an LED. So these mini S-curves are much, much quicker. Speaking of Vaclav Smil, we need to address this. And he's a bit of a hobby horse, as uh, regular listeners know, hobby horse for me. Because the Canadian oil and gas industry has adopted him as their, as their patron saint. Because he says everything moves slowly. And that's that's their narrative. Because they want to move slowly. So they've adopted him. He's coming to Calgary in a couple of weeks. And I told the organizer, I'm not going to waste my time. And in fact, I'm, I'm writing a column. Uh, my wife hates the title. But Vaclav Smil sucks is, is basically oh, okay. would be the title of it. But here's the here's the point. Vaclav Smil is a brilliant, brilliant historian of, of energy transitions. What he missed, and you put your finger on it, is that energy as a commodity, which has been energy all the time, it's it's the 80% of you know primary energy we're talking about, fossil fuels, has been a commodity. This transition is the first one that is based on electronics manufacturing. And it, and it responds to different laws. It happens, costs come down on a curve, efficiencies rise on a curve. You see that with batteries. Costs have come down in the last decade from like a thousand kilowatt, a thousand dollars a kilowatt hour. Now they're what, you know, for a full battery pack, you know, it's $130, $135 and they're, and they're gonna go down well below a hundred by, by 2030. But what's energy energy density been doing? It's been rising and rising, an average of 7% a year. And you can go back and you can look at wind and solar, you can look at, at heat pumps, all, ancillary technologies, and they obey that law or those laws. Mike Andrade, CEO of Morgan Solar, points out to me that it's a, a combination of Moore's law and Wright's law. The learning curves and this idea that you're going to increase, you know, uh, do more with what you have. That's what Smeal has missed. You made that point, and I agree with you 100%. 
that if if our listeners take away nothing more than that point, that Smeal has made a analytical error, a thinking yeah. error. He doesn't understand energy as a technology. Yeah, look, I, it's funny. I, I I have huge respect for Smeal. Uh, apart from anything else, the fact that he writes like four books a year. I don't know how he <laughs> does that, but uh, he's superhuman. And he is, you, you and he realize is you realize he's Canadian, right? I mean, this is just I realize he's 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 Canadian, so he has a lot in common with yourself, but he's also got Czech ancestry, so he's got a lot in common with me. And I oh, and I have a lot of time for him. I think that um the but you're absolutely right. It's not just it's not just smell. It is resource economists. When you say they they obey, it's different laws. This is different microeconomic laws. Let's say you've got a coal resource, right, and you're going to develop it. The first thing you do is you find the best bit of the coal resource, the the best, most productive, the biggest, the the highest quality, whatever. That's what you develop first. And you have to start cutting the, the faces and whatever, and, 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 and you do that. You also need a railway or somewhere getting the coal out. You build that. The moment you're done, that sets your costs from that resource forever. right? And the coal that you take out, you take it out, you burn it. Next day, you have to get more out. There comes a point when you have to go to the next best bit of that resource. Right. So the next bit of coal that you extract from that, that place, from that resource, the next bit is going to be more expensive. And that's resource economics. You can go in a school of mines and you'll, you'll learn that. And that's what resource economists, they do. It's all about that, that um, supply curve, the supply cost curve. And once you've developed something, your costs are fixed. And that is completely different from these clean energy technologies. You talked about batteries. Not only did they go from $1,000 to $130 per kilowatt hour, not only did the um, energy density double in 10 years, but also the degradation, right? Every year, that battery, 10 years ago, they were telling you, oh, it'll get worse by 4% a year. And now it's 2% a year, right? And it's not, by the way, that's the warranty. The reality is much less even than that. So you've got costs coming down, density going up, degradation of the battery going down. I mean, and and so if you, if you think about, well, let's use solar. It's, it, to compare to that coal plant, supposing you build a plant, you start delivering your solar, the first thing that happens, every single panel, it doesn't matter how much it costs to start with, the moment you deliver it, it delivers power at zero marginal cost, effectively forever, well, for, you know, 30 years, whatever the number is. So first of all, that plant, once it's built, off it goes, and it's delivering essentially free energy, right? And the second thing that happens is the moment you build another plant, it's probably going to be bigger and smarter so the next law, unlike coal, is not a worse resource and more expensive. It's actually going to be cheaper. And, you know, if, you, if you've got students listening to this who are, you know, studying econ, it's a fundamentally different course. One is resource economics, which is all about the supply cost curve. The other is all about learning, learning curves. And, it's, it, and these learning curves, which is every doubling of experience, pushes the cost down by the same amount in the case of solar, 25% or more for every doubling of cumulative experience, 10 doublings, 10 doublings in the last 20 years. And everyone has reduced the cost by 25% and it's not going to stop, right? And, and, and it's just a different course in econ completely. And by the way, then you get, you talked about it, uh, the Moore's law piece, or I don't even know what the law is because now we're starting to use machine learning um, whether it's about the catalysts, you know, to design catalysts or to locate wind turbines so they don't interfere with each other or so you can plan your maintenance. And then you really start to get incredible sort of software and network economics which take over. And, and this, is, this is not entirely predictable where it ends up, right? I mean, the, how, how far and how fast the cost can come down. Uh, let's then take this conversation we're having and extrapolate it to the modeling world. And I have I give a presentation on the energy transition in which I talk about the three approaches to the energy transition. One is OPEC with their World Oil uh, Outlook 2045, which is a very slow transition. The other is the IEA, which has three scenarios, but I think the APS scenario is the most likely uh, in that, and that's still a rapid transition, fast transition. And then the Rocky Mountain Institute and our friend Kingsmill Bond, 
you know, who uh, who are more plugged in than the IEA into this idea of energy as a, a technology and and using S curves and and they they argue that that uh, we'll see a very very fast transition that you know they're more in the in the that camp and the point about the IEA or sorry about OPEC because that's a dominant narrative in the oil industry, which is very powerful. And they, you know, and, and uh, we hear it all the time in the, in the uh, mainstream media, we'll call it. What the OPEC folks, they are still doing their analysis on the resource economics model that you talk about. They have not figured out yet or not accepted the fact that we are now dealing with energy as a technology economics. And the IEA has. I There's absolutely no question. I read a lot of IEA reports, and they do very detailed work at the country level, the technology level, the fuel type level, and, and they get that. But I still don't think they get it enough. And I'm beginning to think that Kingsmill and his crew over at, you know, that are based out of Colorado may be onto something and that we may be in for a wild ride as the energy transition accelerates later uh well from now but particularly later in this in this decade so i'm curious about what your take on those sort of three models three models of modeling if you will well so it's one of the, it's going to be another of those answer where the short answer is yes i agree with you and the long answer is i don't agree with you um, and the reason is i think first of all you know the, the the models and i've produced a fair few right there's the bloomberg nef model which dates back to when i actually kind of first said i had a team that was doing wind and solar and energy efficiency and nuclear and they were all saying different things so we started to do a kind of integrated view of the world that that bnef model now um the neo comes out of that work uh you know 15 years later or whatever so but the question most of these models one of the questions you have to ask Kui bono, why are they being produced? So the OPEC model is produced, it, its role in life is not to say, gee, let's come up with the best possible view of the future, the most accurate one that we can. It is to support a business model and a political narrative and negotiations, Agreed. right? That's 100%. what it's for. And so, it, you know, the modelers can be as brilliant as they want. And if they turn around and say, well, what it means is, hmm, I've done that. I've run the numbers and we get, gee, we get wiped out in about 15 years. They're not going to be allowed to publish it. Let's be absolutely clear. The IEA, very interestingly, almost used to be, I, I don't know, it's, it's, not, it's not so much the cui bono problem. It's just the kind of it is unthinkable problem in the sense that there was a sort of, it used to be, I'm talking 20 years ago. It used to be unthinkable um, to a lot of the modelers there that things like wind and solar would get cheap. And my first interactions were trying to get them to understand the prices. So there came a point where IEA produced some forecast for solar and wind that said that in and at the time, I think they went out to 2040, not 2050 or whatever. And they said, oh, in 2040, there'll be this much solar and wind. And I had a database. I could literally show them the rows on the database that said, but that much wind and solar has already been financed today and will be delivered in a year or so. You're going to be wrong. And to their credit, after a few years of this, they said, huh, what is this database you've got? And I said, well, there's this thing and it's new energy finance and I've got this crappy little startup, um, but this is what we do. We list the projects. And they took a look at it and said, well, we need to license that because you're right. You know, if that happens, and these, and these were financed projects, not like the hydrogen projects today, they're kind of, oh, you know, theoretical, we want to do the press release and whatever. These were financed. They'd reached financial close. So I think the IEA and, you know, to Fatih Birol, the head of the IEA's credit, um, they flipped to starting to understand this, but, but um, they still have buried in the guts of their models, they have limiting factors, breaks, right? And so they say, oh, well, solar can't get cheaper forever. We're going to put a floor price. A lot of the kind of integrated assessment models that the IPCC use, they have floor prices. 
or they'll say, well, obviously, solar can't grow, you know, forever, and therefore the learning rate, we, 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 you know, we couldn't be that, or it'll, we'll put a limit at 25% or 10% of penetration of solar and 25%. So they'll put these, odd, and they're buried deep, deep in the modeling. And, you know, they're getting better about being transparent, but some of these kind of limiting factors, very difficult to find, right? And so even though they kind of get that it's learning, they'll use a too small a learning rate with a limiting factor, with a floor price, whatever. And if you look at the scenarios today, you'll still see, and it, it's, what you have to do is take the, the first derivative of the, like the solar installations, because the installation, oh, they soar off to, they looks like fantastic, they grow like crazy. But if you take the first derivative and you say, well, how much does that mean that is being added every year? You find that it flattens. And my question, Kingsville Bond's question, would be why would it flatten? People are still building. You know, there's going to be a terawatt of solar capacity by 2025. Right now, there's like, you know, last year there was like 500 gigawatts. It's going to be doubled again by 2025. Why would the rate of installation slow? So, though I still critique, I still think that in some ways the, and by the way, the Bloomberg NEF models. Um, there, the way they, you know, now we're going back, you know, when I was still involved. So, you know, prior to 2017, when I, you know, stopped having any executive role, but I, I, I would find the team self-regulating. Like if we just, if we just let the learning rate do what it does, solar becomes so cheap that nothing else gets built, right? Which is the kind of Kingsmill Bond answer. And so then they would sort of, change the learning rates and um and when batteries came along there was a learning rate that they were using which was 14 percent because a load of chemical engineers said well they can't see they think it's going to be poor. and i said no batteries is going to be 20 percent plus or minus two percent the learning rate every doubling 20 percent improvement and you have to be brave to say those things but that's what happens now so i think that i think that we will go faster than those big models where i disagree with the you know, solar eats the world model, right? The Kingsmill bond, you know, really rapid is that what then happens is you hit a constraint, which is not the price of the solar panel, but it might be um, the what the Germans call the Dunkelflauter, right? When there is no wind and no sun during winter. And that's a real problem. You can't wish away the difficult stuff just because, you know, the, the one piece becomes really, really cheap. You do need those system solutions and you need those complementary technologies that will enable the cheap stuff to get into the market, to get into the system. People do tow boats using cars and electric vehicles are not good at that yet. It doesn't you can't wish that away. You've got to kind of have a solution for that. I want to talk about one of those uh, limiting factors, and that is power grids. If we're going to an electric future and we need to modernize our power grids. And I think this has been recognized in the United States. They're busy doing that. And it's a fairly chaotic process. And uh, I would imagine from what I've, a little I've read about Europe, it sounds like that's already well underway further than the, uh, than the US. China's well on, on, its, on its way to doing that. But it, this is a, it's, it's top of mind for me because this is happening in Alberta, which is the province, the Canadian province that has the best wind and solar resources and the premier, uh, Danielle Smith, is an absolute opponent of wind and solar. And she she perpetuates these narratives of, you know, the wind doesn't blow and the sun doesn't shine and it endangers. You're going to freeze in your house because, because of that and so on. But I came across an IEA PowerPoint from about two years ago. And it argued, it said, look, there are six phases of variable renewable energy integration. So phase one and two, where it's very small amounts of wind and solar, or inverter-based resources, as they're often called. And you can, you can accommodate that, that variability with forecasting and other kinds of tools that system operators are quite familiar with. So it's not a big deal at phase one and two. But when you starting in phase three, then you have to begin re-engineering your grid. And this is the problem in Alberta, is that they're already into phase three. They have about 14% penetration. 
and the rest would be gas and, and a little bit of coal left, which will be gone fairly soon. So it's mainly it'll mainly be a renewables and gas system. And re-engineering your grid means things like market reform. You need different types of market. You need to be able to incentivize arbitrage. You need to have uh, virtual power plants so you can, uh, you can uh, what's the word, agglomerate or bring together small uh, distributed energy resources like rooftop solar. You need microgrids, microgrids that can work with the bigger power grid and bring more reliability. You need vehicle to grid integration, which we're only just kind of starting to you know, do pilots on. You need better transmission, you need to build out your disk. All of these things and much more because you need long uh, duration storage. I mean, there's many things we could talk about. But this idea of while as wind and solar ramp up, particularly solar, you need to do other things. You need to change your regulatory framework. You need to change your power grid. You need to change the way you finance things. On and on. And on. This idea of re-engineering things to make this cheap energy work is very slow, I find, to catch on. And, and I've had a chance to interview uh, uh, U.S. utility executives and regional transmission organization executives. Even they're grappling with it. It's not clear to them yet that this is where they need to go. And I'd be curious about your perspective on that. Yeah, no, that model um, of, you know, the sort of uh, the first few steps towards integration being easy and so on. Here's the funny thing. You know, when I started uh, New Energy Finance back 20 years ago, almost uh, to the day, um, the thinking was you could not have uh, more than four or five percent variable renewables on the system. And in fact, a bunch of German utilities placed an ad in the German papers saying wind, water and solar will never be more than four percent of our power system. Even in the long term, right? the number was, last year was 50%, right? It was technically impossible. But, you know, so what happened was the four or 5% back then, a bunch of countries, a bunch of states, Texas, a few others kind of went through to, you know, 8%, 10%. So, oh, well, you could never go to 15%. And then they went through the 15%. Well, you could never go to 20% or 25%. Then you go through... and. So we've now got a bunch of really serious economies, serious economies, Germany at 50%. Um, the UK is 60% clean, including nuclear. So it's about 40, I think 40%, more than 40% renewables, which for us is mainly wind and solar, a bit of solar in the, su in the summer, and uh, some, bio, uh, some biomass as well, but not, not a huge amount of biomass. It's mainly wind. Um, and so it goes. And there's always a kind of frontier where you have to do the things you've talked about um, in order to uh, to integrate what are, you know, there's also this kind of pushback that says, oh, the wind isn't that cheap because you have to do these other things. Well, no, it is that cheap. The wind and the solar are that cheap. And then what you have to think about, the, the model of how you run your grid changes. Instead of doing this thing called base load and then having some peakers, what you're doing is you're trying to integrate what I call base cost, right? The really, really cheap resources you want to be able, it's like saying, well, you know, I can go shopping. I don't know, we, we have an expensive set of shops in the UK, Waitrose. Well, why would you buy your toilet paper from Waitrose? Why don't you just go to the, you know, to the wholesale discount store, to the Lidl, buy your toilet paper there and go and get your salmon from Waitrose, right? So you want to include your base cost renewables from the cheapest resource you can get, the cheapest stuff, which is the wind and the solar. And then now what will happen, as you say, you have to restructure your markets because now, you're going to use that gas less and less and less. And frankly, that's not bad for Alberta. It just means you can sell that gas instead of, you know, or, or, you know, it's, it's, it's not, it, it shouldn't be seen as threatening the fact that you're going to use the very cheap local resources more and more and more. Uh, but you need to enable that. You're absolutely right. And, and frankly, it's a failure of vision not to, because it's a, it's an explicit decision to be a price taker. I came to Calgary a few years ago and I spoke and I was trying to think of a title for my talk. How should I, I knew exactly that I was going to get a mixed audience, some oil and gas people, very hostile to this idea and some technology people and, you know, much more uh, open and so on. And I, and I was in the airport at Heathrow on a, a travelator 
And I went under this sign and it said, face the direction of travel. And I was so taken by this that I actually went round again and took a photograph of it. And I threw it up on the screen at this conference, face the Alberta, face the direction of travel. Right. We know which way all of this goes. And now you can say, well, we're either going to have our great energy companies fighting a permanent rearguard action, facing away from the direction of travel, facing oil and gas and oil sands and resisting. Or you can face the direction of travel and then you'll still find outlets for your resources. But there will also be new business opportunities. And that is, you know, that that's what I would love to see Canada and Alberta, Calgary, places I love facing the direction of travel. Well, I can partly answer that because Energy Media has taken a very clear editorial stance for a number of years now. And our argument is that bitumen is too valuable a resource to burn. The oil sands bitumen, not many people will understand this, but I've interviewed the scientists at Alberta Innovative, uh, Alberta Innovates, who are leading this, this research. And bitumen is a, an amazing resource for building materials, carbon fiber. It, uh, chief among them. And I have argued and, and argue publicly in Alberta all the time. And, you know, the rotten tomatoes come up, I have to say, as soon as I do, uh, that there should be a transition. They should build up a, an advanced materials manufacturing sector and over time build a domestic market for bitumen so that as one declines, the other rises. And eventually, if you're really smart about it, you could continue to extract bitumen and have all the jobs and the economic activity. And then you add on top of that your advanced materials manufacturing and their supply chains, and you've essentially doubled or tripled your economic activity while going to zero emissions. And you have now a post-combustion economy that is built for the 21st and 22nd century. So it is a failure of vision, Michael, because so few people in, under in Alberta understand where it could go, where maybe it even should go. And they're and they're locked into the incumbent struggle with a changing marketplace and changing technologies. And they want to protect the incumbents instead of embracing change. And that's a I can't overemphasize how important that idea is, even at the global level where you have China and Europe and, and the United States, the Americas basically in locked in a clean energy global arms race already. Right. And, you know, you can add to that. I don't know whether, you know, whether bitumen is the kind of secret to the advanced materials, but definitely, you know, you, you look at um, advanced materials, additive manufacturing, and basically all the, all the really smart stuff, what you should be thinking about is ways to export and to harvest the intelligence, the education, the chemistry knowledge that is sort of that is in Alberta. That's the resource, um, because you've also got, by the way, and I hate to say it, but you've got a high carbon resource and a high cost resource in a world of declining demand. Prices are going to be volatile, which means every few years. Guess what happens when the when the sea level drops? Who is it that is, you know, whoever is, you know, highest out of the water is first to be seen not to be wearing any underpants. And that's <laughs> the worry for, for Alberta, that every time there's price volatility, it's going to be, you know, the, the Canadian resources that are left stranded. And it's just a really dangerous place to be. It feels great when the oil prices are nice and high and, you know, everybody's, everybody's making money, but it does not feel great. And you know, it's not like this is a secret. You know, you, you've had these cycles. You've seen these cycles. There's not a secret. Um, we'll leave the debate over whether or not the oil sands are high cost, because there's an argument that, in fact, they're not. But I, but we'll get sidetracked if we go down that uh, that road. Um, Ask the Saudis what they think. Oh, well, there's, there's no doubt. Well, I want to ask you this question then, because the uh, I, I first ran across this argument in the, the BP annual uh, economic or energy analysis and spencer dale is the chief economist there and he made this in like 2018 he said there will come a time in the energy transition where the decline of the of oil demand will be obvious and then at that point there we sometimes the saudis and other low-cost middle eastern producers will make a calculus and at some point they will say it's now more 
economically efficient and effective for us to flood the market, force all the high cost producers like the shale producers down in the Permian Basin and the oil sands producers and so on, force them out of the market, take that market share for ourselves, and eventually we, we maximize our return on a declining resource, on a sunset industry, basically. And, and I've been sitting around waiting to see when that point will be. What do you make of Spencer Dale's argument? Well, the funny thing is, 2015, I went to a conference in Shanghai, and overnight in my hotel room, because I end up putting my slides together late always, um, it's just my way, I created a slide that looked at the evolution of oil, global oil demand. And, you know, it used to be that it kind of was one way, it only went up. And by the way, what that means is if you've got demand that's going to increase, you can't really screw up by exploring or, or building, you know, extraction uh, resources, right? Extracting assets, because worst comes to the worst, that demand just arrives a few years late. And it used to be this very steep, um, it would shoot through 100 million barrels a day. And then a few years later, this was like before 2000. And then between 2000 and 2005, it kind of still shot up, but a bit less steep, and then a bit less steep, and then a bit less steep. And I asked the question, I put a slide together that said, well, what happens if we see this demand, this this arrow maybe going through 100 million barrels a day, but not by much, and then coming back down? because demand is going away because of electric vehicles, more efficient vehicles, uh, changes in, you know, uh, whatever it is, you know, public transportation, the whole thing, lots of forces. And it was just this real, I, when I showed it, there was like nervous ner laughter. Michael has gone mad in the audience. A few years later, it was Spencer Dale and BP showing an almost identical chart. It was, I think it was, tw it was 2020 or 2021. So five years later, and this has become maybe not orthodoxy. I think orthodoxy is now the oil peaks before 2040. But Spencer and BP were saying uh, could be, you know, this side of 2030 could be 2025. And yeah, no, I think what, but what's really interesting is, of course, the oil fields have a decline rate, particularly the non-conventional. And so there's always going to be this, this sort of how quickly does demand fall away versus how quickly do the oil fields fall away? And if the oil fields fall away too quickly, we'll have to, ex we'll have to do exploration and that will support the price. But, you know, it, it's hard to see because demand, I think once it tips and it will tip, it's going to fall away reasonably quickly. It's going to go down at sort of two, 3% a year, 5%, those sorts of things. But you're right about not just Saudi, but everybody at that point is going to want to do to first shut off the exploration activity, right? Because that could be, you know, producing stranded assets. You'll want to just chuck out cash, but you'll also want to use up the last barrel of your own national resource or the, the last barrel of developed oil you will want to extract and sell. And that'll be the game between the different countries and different producers. There is an idea that is central to my argument about Alberta that is laughed at. If you go to the Calgary Petroleum Club and, and, and you make this argument, you, uh, you'll be laughed at. And I'm, I'm, I'm doing a lot of lunch and learns and presentations, energy transition presentations in Alberta these days. So when I say laughed at, I, I speak from experience. Here's, here's the point. The issue for Alberta and any oil producing region is not displacement, it's disruption. Long before your market is, your demand is destroyed, your market is destroyed, your market will be disrupted. Your business model will be disrupted. So you talked about volatile oil prices. That's one element of disruption. Uh, declining profit margins would be another. Uh, tighter uh, climate uh, you know, uh, regulations and policy would be another. And we're already seeing the beginnings of that disruption. We're already seeing it. And it's only going to intensify. And what happens then is those uh, producers who are not competitive, they go to government and they ask for regulations to keep the, the, the competitors out. Or they ask for subsidies because, oh, don't worry about it. This is still cyclical. It'll come back in a couple of years. So give us billions of dollars now to keep us happy. And, and you'll make it up in royalties and taxes in a couple of years. Well, of course, this is not a cycle. That's the point. And so 
disruption arrives a lot quicker than displacement. Yeah, I, and I think that disruption will arrive as soon as sectors go X growth. You know, it, it then suddenly focuses the mind. It's very hard to recruit talent when you're not in a growing industry. It's very hard to um, invest in, you know, exploration development activities if you don't really know what the price of the resource will be. And, and you can't just sit there and wait for the next upcycle and so on. Um, but, so, yes, the disruption does is, is leading. I went to, uh, interesting, I went to California and we're talking about like 2007. And you know, I was this limey out of London. I came, you know, the Californians, they knew, you know, their markets much better than I did. And um, and I asked them what they were gonna do when the, the midday price of electricity went to zero. And they said, well, what do you mean? I said, well, because right now it's all air conditioning load. It's the best time of the day. You're making your money, all your utilities, you're making PG&E, right? They were making their money midday by running, when people run their air conditioners. I said, yeah, but it's going away. You know, winter winter is coming, not winter, winter, but, you know, that lovely, juicy chunk of the day's demand is going to go away. And they laughed at me. They thought I was mad. And, of course, now we've got the duck curve and the prices go to zero midday. And, you know, PG&E went bankrupt partly because of the fires, but partly because they just did not anticipate the disruption to everything they did. But, you know, it, it, it's 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 brutal when it comes. It's brutal. And, and and California is actually a good example, and I think PG and E is is, is in within that that uh, context uh, because the early days. So we're talking about remember the there was a a blackout or in California, and then there was one in Texas. I think it was 2021, 2022, with the, the 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 big blizzard and the storm, and the response from the within the power sector was to add, in California in particular, great gobs of storage. Great gobs of storage. And lo and behold, the next summer was not nearly as bad. And then 2023 was actually pretty good. And there was, you know, there was the response to peak demand when those air conditioners click on was much better than it had been a few years ago. And now we're seeing more innovation in things like uh, virtual power plants and microgrids and all of that. And some of those technologies that were way out there not that long ago are now being adopted in California and other and other markets and stabilizing the grid, stabilizing uh, demand, you know, the the disconnect between supply and demand that happens with with uh, variable resources. I I think that that there's lots of lessons there for for jurisdictions uh, across North America, and I'd be curious to know uh, what you think of them. Right. No, I, I, absolutely. There's a big chunk of that. Um, and um, so we do see batteries and we do. But we also just see like learning, because if you actually go into what happened in California, why was it so close to disaster? And in um, Texas, you know, it, it's amazing. Every time something like that happens in Australia, uh, when there's, you know, the, there was this power cut, every, ah, it's the wind, it's the wind, it's the solar, it's the wind and solar. And of course, only later you get the investigation that says, well, actually, no, a bunch of pylons fell over in Australia, or the piles of coal froze in uh, in Texas, or they, they just, you know, shut down a whole bunch of gas-fired power stations and so on in, in California. And so there's a lot of learning about just, you know, not doing dumb things or being smarter about how you use the resources. Um, there is also a lot of learn, you know, the new technologies that, that come in, and we've got to see a lot more of that. So, for instance, we've got to see a lot more smart charging. We've got to see a lot more. The, the, we, you started this segment talking about the grid, grid constraints, right? We have this discussion. I don't know if it's happening in anywhere in Canada about um, the. So we have the Scottish Energy Minister. There's a huge amount of wind in Scotland, so much so. And there's not enough transmission to get it down to the big sources of demand in the in you know in in England and in southern England in particular, so it gets constrained and we have to pay some of the wind generators to switch off. Ah, she says we should use hydrogen blending because of the grid constraints. So when it's windy, we'll make hydrogen and we'll get it down to the south of the country um, using hydrogen blending. And the the problem is. The round trip efficiency of going from electricity in Scotland back to what you need, which is electricity in the in, in the UK, is like 30%, which is basically by definition 
equivalent to 70% grid constraints. The real number is like 3%. So, you know, we, we have... Um, we have these discussions about fake solutions, but actually, if you think about it, what is the solution in that situation? Well, hang on a second. Why are we not giving away practically heat pumps in Scotland? Or in fact, we don't even need to give them away. If we just let the electricity price in Scotland go to zero or negative, we have one price across the whole of the country. It's completely mad, you know, instead of locational pricing. If we let the price in Scotland of electricity drop to zero or negative when it's really windy, Everybody will go out, they'll buy an electric car and they'll buy a heat pump because 20%, 25% of the time, 10% of the time, they'll get free power. And so you, the need for these heavy regulatory incentives, subsidies and so on, actually reduces if you get the price signal through the system. And so we're going to have, so it's a combination of what you talked about, the technologies, batteries, they get really cheap. Yeah, but they're useless if you don't have the price signal that says charge the battery now don't charge it now, use it now. Vehicle to grid, smart charging, electric heating, uh, and, and so on. And, and uh, you know, I, I'm working right now with an incredible um, heat, industrial heat pump company, right? So again, when, the, when it's really windy and sunny, make sure the electricity is really, really cheap. Get that price signal through and people will upgrade to the technologies that are complementary and drive them down those ferocious cost curves. I would agree. And um, you, you can see in almost every jurisdiction that you examine uh, that the there is a learning curve. We're on the learning curve. We're not at the end of the lear learning curve. We may be at the beginning of the learning curve. And and as we, you know, as time passes, we get better and better and better at, at this sort of thing. And but that leads me to the issue of China. And I, I said at the beginning that China was going to drag us uh, kicking and screaming into the electric age. And we haven't yet had a chance to really uh, talk about China. So let's do that. And maybe the way in is China is undertaking market reforms to do the very thing, kind of things that you're talking about. And it's not quite, uh, yes, it's an authoritarian country. And yes, the national government has a tremendous amount of power, more than it does in, in democratic countries like Canada and the UK. Nevertheless, it has it has provincial governments and it has local governments, and those all have to be coordinated. And they, and they they you know to make it work, they have to buy in and so on. And so they're struggling a little bit as well to figure this out and the role that coal will play. But they're figuring it out. That's the that's the whole point. And they're and they're adopting tremendous amounts of solar. Half of the solar every year in the world goes is installed in China. And they have all the factories to make, you know, solar panels at 12 cents a watt instead of 40 cents a watt in the U.S. The, hence my argument that China is going to drag us kicking and screaming into the electric age. So your take, sir. Well, so I, I think, as I said, you know, when we started, I talked about this, the, the five superheroes. Number three was great power competition. So I don't think it's just China. I mean, you look at US with the Inflation Reduction Act, which in some cases is insanely over generous, right? But it is spurring an enormous amount of money to be spent, to be invested, enormous amounts of talent to be absorbed. Um, and you know, it is it is clearly a marker. And it's by the way, it's much more about China than it is about climate, right? The, the support for it. In fact, you can't go as far as to say support, but it's just really noticeable that there just isn't much of a pushback. You don't have President, uh, former President Trump saying, I'm going to hang my electoral you know, hat on repealing the Inflation Reduction Act because it's popular. But it's popular partly because of the climate impacts and so on, but a lot more because of the, the, the jobs and the fact that it is expressly targeting uh, the recovery of you know, strategic national knowledge and supply chains from China. Uh, the EU is kind of stuck in the middle. They would like to play the big, the great power games, um, but they don't have the federal budget that a US has or the control of its economy that China has. Um, and so you've seen, you know, Germany uh, tried to had a budget. It was ruled illegal. So a lot of sort of green programs have, have been put on ice because of that. The EU's never had these huge central budgets. They talk a good game. I think they're going to fail to meet a lot of those sort of huge targets. Um, but that, you know, so I think that's the key to the next 
you know, decade. I mean, you've got to also figure out then there's India, right? India can also uh, enormously expand its, you know, wind, solar, batteries, EVs, et cetera, et cetera. But right now uh, is pretty dependent on China for its supply chains. And that's not an easy relationship. And then you've got Africa, this kind of sleeping giant of resources, which, um, you know, there's no solution to all of this without helping, you know, Africa to become wealthy and, uh, and, and to improve its governance and so on. And also, by the way, if Europe thinks that it can achieve its targets with an impoverished Africa suffering from climate damages and exporting millions of people a year illegally into Europe, forget it. So there's got to be a kind of Europe-Africa axis in all of this uh, as well. Um, yeah, so I don't think it's just China, but obviously what China is doing is enormously impressive. The but, the caveat, is that there's also enormous misallocation of resources um, in China. And this is something my, my podcast, Cleaning Up, um, actually going out uh, tonight, as it happens. I've got an expert on China who unpicks this because, you know, it, it's very easy to sit outside China and say, wow, look at all those that amazing spending. Um, but, you know, there's a lot of it is misallocated. There's a lot of coal-fired power stations being built that will have very poor capacity factors. There has been, until recently, a lot of wind and solar built that's been you know, not connected for years and years to the grid. So well, let's, I'm, I'm giving a couple of caveats there. And fair enough. I mean, I, I, the last uh, figure I saw was that only 38% of China's solar panel manufacturing capacity is being used. And uh, there is some capacity over issue, uh, issues with uh, EV manufacturing, and and on on and on and on. So I I, I take that 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 caveat uh, seriously. And just to clarify, my argument really isn't you know I, I've over I've exaggerated uh, the role that I think China will play. Usually, what I say is that we've now kicked off a global clean energy arms race between China, the EU, and the U.S. And and others will draft in around those uh, as 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 time goes on. Yeah. And, um, and the reason I, I frame it this way, Michael, is because and again, you know, most a lot of the debate that I'm involved in is is in Canada and is between Alberta and other provinces, the federal government and the there Alberta has specifically and unequivocally adopted the OPEC model and the OPEC narrative. And where OPEC makes a fundamental error, in my opinion, is dividing the world up into OECD economies and non-OECD economies. So the OECD economies, they acknowledge, will, will electrify, they'll adopt more wind and solar, and they'll electrify their transportation, demand will go down. But then they say the non-OECD, so we're talking about you know Latin America and, and Africa, but Africa particularly, that's where the, the oil and gas is going to thrive and that's where new demand will come from and that's why they argue that it will the new demand will more than compensate for the the declining old demand and we'll see growth actually out to 2045 and i think that's wrong because we're going to see those non-oecd countries as they call them uh actually adopt this really cheap technology electric technology wind and solar and all of the other stuff that goes along with it and so what's your take on that? Well, so I think let's map that back to the stages of integrating these clean resources into the grid. So first of all, the, the, the game in town, in case anybody is not keeping up, is not hydrogen. It is electrification. It's hydrogen for the things you have to use hydrogen for, as we talked about in the last my last time on the show. Um, so the game in town is electrification. The stages you laid out, first bit's easy and blah, blah, blah. Let's talk about you know, the last stage we've kind of glossed over, right? There comes a point where you want to get to 100% net zero, decarbonize it. That's really, really hard. And that dominates the debate. It dominates. Oh, you can't you can't do the, the, the Germans Dunkelflaute, that sort of two-week wind drought in winter when there's no solar. You can't do that with wind and solar because every sort, right, fine. But that's not an argument to do nuclear for the entire 365 days a year. That is a specific problem that is a couple of weeks per year. And frankly, I don't care if you solve that with unabated gas for my lifetime, which is, you know, out till 2050, 2060, if I'm lucky. Right. And and then ultimately we'll have to deal with it. But let's get to those kind of 70, 60, 70, 80 percent decarbonization fast. That's the game in 
well, as you now coming back to your question, that's the game in the OECD is to get there really fast. So you've got this this fossil, which is good, fossil supply, which is going to kind of shrink gracefully, ungracefully, maybe maybe in Alberta, but everywhere else, gracefully is going to shrink down, shrink down, seeding territory, declining as the as the the, the wells decline uh, and as the mines are exhausted for coal, seeding that territory, going down to. 40%, 30%, 20%, and then 10% might get really hard, but let's worry about that. My kids will worry about that. Our kids will worry about that. Now you look at, well, what's the role of the, the developing world, the non-OECD? And that is very simple. Leapfrog. Don't go to enormous industrialization based on 90% coal, 80% coal, 70% coal. They'd have to go to 60% coal, 50%. No, figure out where the puck is going to be, to use a great Canadian analogy for all strategy that we ever try and think about in business. Figure out where the puck is going to be, right, in 2040, 2050, and go there. That doesn't mean don't develop your gas fields. What it means is develop your gas fields if you're a Mozambique, right, for instance, Develop them by all means, but only use them as a backup resource because you're using so much cheap wind and solar uh, and you know whatever else they have. They, I think I suspect they'll have quite a bit of biogas and so on. Only use your fossil resources where you absolutely have to because, frankly, that's going to be a source of competitive advantage in the future, not to be dismantling things and stranding assets and having political, you know, um, bun fights and inertia because the incumbents are trying to hold on to the, the wrong resources as, as is happening in, in Alberta and across Canada, parts of Canada. So, you know, leapfrog, go to where the puck is. That's, I think, what the game has to be in these faster developing developing countries. You know, that, that's not an answer for, I don't know, there, there are, you know, the slow developing countries, it's a different game. There, it's just like, let's get electrification to people and whatever it takes and, and deal with conflicts and so on. But the, the countries that are growing fast, skate to where the puck is, well, to where the puck is going to be, rather. Uh, if I, that, that, uh, that saying is, uh, is often attributed to the great Wayne Gretzky, the hockey player. And it was 100%. Actually, and it was his father, Walter, who actually coined it. So there we go. A little bit of trivia for all of you non-Canadians. Uh, we learn we learn these kinds of things at birth. Trust me. Uh, so here's a, an interesting point about the non-OEC countries and the, and the argument that you just made, Michael. And that is uh, China's Belt and Road Initiative, which spends about $100 billion a year, trillion dollars over the last decade, is now 70, 80% focused on renewables. No more coal, no more building coal plants for the most part uh, in places like, um, never mind, can't, can't think of a, an example offhand. That's changing. The Americans are leading an initiative whose name, uh, and I think it's an, an acronym, actually, one of those dreadful things. Um, but they're doing the same kind of thing. And part of it for China is they have an enormous amount, as I mentioned earlier, of surplus manufacturing capacity. And if you have that, why would you not look for export markets? This is a this is a, a ages-old economic strategy by, by national governments. The Americans employed it after 1945 to get into places like Latin America to subsidize the adoption of your technology in other countries you, with your co your companies. They do it all the time. But we're going to, I think we're going to see it speed up. And I think that is going to be an important um, stimulus to some of these non-OECD countries adopting clean energy maybe earlier than they might have. Right. And um, so first of all, that model, um, you talked about China doing it, the US did it after the war. Well, guess who was doing it uh, 150 years ago, 200 years ago? Uh, Britain, you know, uh, and, and it's a model that's well known. But I don't think, I think what's happening, again, it's not just going to be the China story, you know, and I, I appreciate you know, you're coming back to China, but really, if you think about this kind of trifocal, great power, you know, US, China, Europe, in a way, what I think we're going to see is we're wooing the rest of the world, 
right? Because the rest of the world has resources that we need, whether it's the you know critical minerals for the transition uh, and you know for the to keep us wealthy during the transition, uh, we're going to have to get those, and we're going to have to also find export markets. All of us are going to find those export markets around the the developing world, the sun, the the, the global south, and so on, and. I think that it's really interesting to see if, if you if you agree with that sort of postulate that we're going to actually have to kind of win friends and influence people you know, in the global south and so on. Um, how are we going to do that? And there is one way that says, well, you know, we will just drop the environmental standards and we will just, you know, we'll just build, build, build. And we don't, you know, we'll have low standards for corruption. We're just not going to catch anybody being corrupt. You know, that's one model. There is another model, which is, no, actually what we're going to do is, is you know, try to do it with justice and with high uh, standards. And I think that's, a, I don't know which one is going to win, right? It's, I, I would love to think because I, you know, I, I'm the product of a liberal democracy, a very, you know, uh, an, a, a sort of, um, you know, an economy that's based on a lot of, uh, you know, intellectual property and so on. I would love to think that, that the global South and those countries in the developing world want to be part of that and don't just take the shortest of shortcuts and that they protect themselves against the corruption or the short, the, the kind of low environmental standards, low labor standards. But, but there's going to be a huge temptation to just go that route. And I think, you know, if you see it in the context of also what's going on with, with Russia's invasion of, um, of Ukraine, you know, Russia is clearly trying to set this thing up as Russia being the champion of the non-NATO world, the non-Western world. And, and, and so there is a kind of an element of, uh, of, I don't know, kind of Lord of the Rings. These become, you know, th these become really important. It's a really important battle to win that, that those countries become part of our sphere and are not lost to a a dictatorial um, command economy, uh, autocratic, low human rights, low environmental standards sphere. I, I very much hope that they kind of that they fall on our side. And and you know, and India is of course one of the most interesting. Africa is incredibly important for Europe, as I've said, but India is a really um, key sort of swing constituency. You know, I want I want the closest possible relationships with India. You know the biggest democracy in the world, and we should be you know working together to increase environmental standards and wealth and inclusion and and uh, because the, you know it could be such an important sort of swing player in in our team, right? Well, Michael, uh, on that note, uh, I've kept you long enough. This has been a fascinating conversation, as it always is when you're uh, when you're on Energy Talks. So I thank you for that, and uh, we'll look forward to the next. Welcome, it's always an incredible pleasure. Thank you so much.